Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three. Sometimes less is more. Jaws is a brilliant score, not only due to where music was placed in the movie, but also where it wasn't. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins. And this is part one of our analysis of the soundtrack to Jaws, the very first blockbuster, as we now know it, from Universal Pictures in 1975, directed by Steven Spielberg with a score by John Williams. The movie runs just a little over two hours in length. So I'm going to divide this into two parts because, as I mentioned in the last episode, there really are two parts to this film score. There's the shark and its accompanying rhythmic pattern, or ostinato, and everything that takes place on Amity Island itself. And then there's the other half, which is the heroic, human-centric adventure that takes place at sea aboard the Orca, as Captain Quint, Chief Brody, and oceanographer Matt Hooper find and attempt to kill the shark. As we'll eventually cover, the score changes from from dark to light, from being focused on the mindless force of nature that's attacking and killing islanders, to being focused on the human spirit, the bravery, and the centuries-old tradition of humankind sailing the seven seas. In this episode, we're going to talk about the first hour of the movie. Now, before you think, oh man, is this whole episode going to be done? Don't we know this stuff already? Well, admittedly, if you were to listen to many of the various soundtrack releases of Jaws over the years, for example, you do hear that theme a lot. But I have a few facts and a few observations that I want to share. I hope they surprise you, and I hope you find them as fascinating as I do. The first is this. There is a remarkably small amount of music in the first hour of Jaws. Out of 60 minutes, there's less than 20 minutes of screen time that contain orchestral music. There are other soundtrack elements that are going on, and uh, we'll talk about that, but in terms of the first hour, so much of our screen time is spent without music. The second observation is this. There are so many wonderful musical moments outside of the shark's motifs that are crucial to our emotional involvement with our characters, such as the relationship uh, Chief Brody has with his children, uh, 
as well as understanding the overall plot, as in the promenade or montage cue that we'll discuss, which is one of my absolute favorites. And finally, the third observation is this. While the first half of the movie is all about the shark's theme and the shark's effect on Amity Island, we don't actually see the shark in the first hour of the movie at all. It's not until the shark's third attack at around the one hour mark that we even get a glimpse of the pneumatic rubber and fiberglass puppet, affectionately named Bruce after Steven Spielberg's lawyer. And that's just barely under the surface of the water, just for a mere moment, just a shot. So when we talk about the shark's motif and how it's used in the first half, we need to talk about a concept that author Emilio Adesino calls spatial perceptive function. What does that mean? What, what is that? Well, it means that the shark's music is the only thing, oftentimes, that is helping us, the audience, perceive or track where the shark is in spatial relation to the characters on the screen. Spatial perceptive function. We'll talk about how that's used and how John Williams brilliantly scored the film star, the shark, with music, a star that is mostly, if not entirely, in the first half off screen. So we're going to start with the very first shark attack. This is after the opening credits. We see these teenagers having a beach bonfire party and and two of them are making eyes at each other and they go running off down the beach for a midnight swim. Uh, the female Chrissy, she jumps into the ocean, but her love interest is too drunk to disrobe and to make it off the beach and into the water. Okay, so what follows in the film soundtrack is honestly too terrible to even play on this show. I've I found it disturbing ever since I first saw Jaws, um, this incredible performance um, uh, of this shark attack um, and the attack that comes from below the water. So I'm just going to play, I'm not going to play the film clip, I'm just going to play the orchestral performance so we get a good idea of how Williams used music, not sound effects, to convey the shark's approach and attack. Let's take a listen to this first victim here. Right away, you get uh, these watery triads, du, 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 and the harps, and some piano and other percussion. And then the rhythmic pulse, we're hinting at it, but we're not quite getting it yet as the camera is looking up from the depths at the water. But listen as the pulse kicks in here. And it gets louder and louder. And John Williams actually gives us the sound of the first bite with the orchestra here. Yikes, and then high strings, and then a second bite. And then the struggling, the struggling, the swimming around, and the kicking. Third bite, fourth bite, fifth bite. Bass drums. What this does to our imagination is that we suddenly feel the terror of Chrissy. The struggle. Not only are we getting the terror of her, but we can imagine this horrible attack taking place under, unseen beneath the water. And then the shark disappears with its victim. Oh, it's so chilling, terrifying. This sets the tone for the entire psychology of this movie. And John Williams has conditioned us to know a few things right off the bat, just with this opening scene, right after the opening credits. When the music gets louder, 
So here's number one. When the music gets louder and and less in the bassy instruments and more in sort of the high strings, etc., that means the shark is moving vertically up toward the surface, and it is swimming with a purpose here. Uh, number two, when the music disappears, the attack is over. The shark is gone. The music disappears with the shark, and it's taken its victim with it. And then, you know, the third thing to notice here is that we now have a one-to-one relationship with that music and that shark. And we're not even five minutes into the movie. So our spatial perceptive function is supplied in no small part at all by John Williams here. So there's good news for us, the audience. So uh, we actually, from this point on, after this horrible, horrible attack, we get to see and feel some normal life for a while, actually quite a while. So after the opening attack, we're given a breather, a breather of normal Amity life. From about five minutes into the movie to about 17 minutes, we just get to know Chief Martin Brody and his family. He's this New York cop that has moved his family to Amity to uh, presumably escape the horrible crime that New York City was famous for in the mid-70s. No music, just morning sunrise, the kids... Uh, you know, playing out in the yard. And then he gets a call about a missing person. So the chief goes into this very normal town. He he um, he finds the deputy on the beach. And of course, he sees the remains of the shark's first victim, the attack that I just played. Now, at this point, we only get a very small musical stinger for when Brody actually sees the victim's remains. And even that is just a minute in length. Other than that, no orchestral music for 12 minutes. In fact, the first 18 minutes of the movie only contains less than four minutes of music. I mean, that's very, very light by today's action standards. If you consider how much music we're bombarded with in a lot of big movies today, it's there's not a lot of music at the top of this movie. Well, okay, I have to confess, there there is some other music that we hear during this time, but uh, we have to shift a little bit here, shift subjects, because it falls under a different category. It's one that we need to introduce and discuss on the soundtrack show. And we'll probably discuss it a lot into the future in other films as well. Um, This category will come up again and again Uh, in film, TV, theater, video game music. It's called diegetic music or source music. It simply means this. Source music is music that comes from the world of the characters. It's the movie's world. It's actually music that if you lived on Amity Island, you would actually be hearing this music as you walked around. In other words, our characters on screen can hear it as well as us, the audience. In the case of Jaws, this leads to actually a really fun story and kind of a nice break from the menacing shark music that we've been listening to for the last couple episodes. So throughout the movie... You hear this marching band playing. Uh, Presumably, they're local to the island. They're not that good or professional. And they're kind of treated or, quote, worldized to sound like they're coming from down the street or on the other side of the beach, et cetera, so on and so forth. And it kind of adds to the overall mood of life on the island and the contrast of summer vacation versus the darkness of the shark attacks. Well, these aren't part of the score per se, But interestingly enough, John Williams recorded the band music himself. Uh, There were tunes by Scott Joplin and Johann Strauss Jr., but he also wrote a couple of pieces himself. The score for Jaws commenced recording on Monday, March 3rd, 1975. 
It was raining in Los Angeles that week, and it was raining really hard. A lot of storm systems moving in. The first two days of recording were the full orchestra, and they were recorded at the Fox scoring stage in Culver City. The third day, Wednesday, March 5th, 1975, was recorded up at the Universal stage, stage 10, at Universal Studios. This was because it was a, quote, stringless day. So it was a different setup, different stage. Uh, stringless, that means it was all brass, percussion, winds, guitars, etc., uh, but no string sections, which would be violins, violas, cello, and, and basses, right? Because this is when they were going to record all of the source or diegetic cues of this local Amity marching band. So, little side story here. Um, the star of the orchestra when it comes to Jaws is this tuba player named Tommy Johnson, who uh, had been given quite a workout playing the shark's secondary motif or melody on the tuba, which for that instrument is an is in an unusually high register. He has to play this. On the tuba. Tuba's used to living down here. So doing this is kind of like asking a bass baritone to, to sing a Mariah Carey song or like a Led Zeppelin song. They'll get through it. It's just not going to be that comfortable. It's a lot of, it's a lot of effort to do it. When asked why that melody wasn't assigned to an instrument with a higher register, like a French horn, John Williams actually responded in an interview that, quote, what I had in mind were the lower instruments of the orchestra, those capable of plunging the sonic depths that would represent the shark in music. The tuba was one of those instruments that could create that atmosphere. It's a difficult tuba part, and players need to be on their toes to do it. But back to the story at hand. So this, this tuba player, this poor guy, Tommy Johnson, after two days of being on his toes, playing some very difficult music for tuba, he found himself stuck in traffic on the third day on his way to the stringless session. Uh, the storm was particularly bad that day, and there were mudslides and car accidents that left him stuck on the 405. So when he finally arrived late to the session, he was one out of 22 players that day, they were, according to Tommy, quote, just waiting for me to get my tuba out, end quote. But by his account, and by all accounts, that day was a really fun day because the creative direction was for the band to sound like a local high school band and not very good, kind of amateur. So not a lot of polish, right? Students. So they brought in a ringer, and that ringer was Steven Spielberg himself. That's right. Uh, the director of the movie, Steven Spielberg, joined the band as an amateur clarinetist. Um, he had played clarinet in school. And you can actually hear his playing in the band. I'm going to play you a cue that was written by John Williams as diegetic music and listen for the out-of-time clarinet playing by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Here's another cue written by John Williams, and this is called Marching Band Number Two. It just starts off with a lot of percussion. This goes on and on for a while, but the reason I wanted to play this for you is to demonstrate that this was recorded in the studio by John Williams, written and arranged by him, but it's really meant to just be music that you hear locally around the town. Here comes the start of the tune.
you get the idea. Here's actually uh, a little bit of soundtrack to the movie in the uh, opening reels of the film here. This is Chief Brody going through the town, trying to get signs together to close down the beach the first time. Hey, Chief. Where do we keep the beach closed signs? Chief. We never oh, had it? No. There's a damn truck with New Hampshire place on it smack in front of my store. Always getting harassed Just by the locals. Just fill out the form. Just fill it out. And now he's outside. And you hear the band down the street. Ah, uh, there's a sound effect trope. Dogs barking off, off screen. Birds chirping as he looks up. And you just hear this band, again, worldized, as if they're coming from down the street. It just adds to the environment. It adds to the feeling of being on Amity Island. Of course, while Brody tries to close the beach, he is overruled by the, the mayor named Larry, who is this, uh, who wears this uh, tacky, anchor-patterned, nautical-themed suit and tie throughout the movie. Um, and he's also overruled by the coroner, who changes his mind and goes along and says, oh, it was a boating accident. Uh, several real estate and business owners, they all decide, no, the beaches have to remain open. And what this does is it sets the scene for another attack. We don't get any other type of music in this movie until that second attack happens, until a young boy named Alex Kintner is attacked and ultimately killed by the shark just off the beach while afloat on a yellow raft. And this is a, a very famous cue as well, but let's go ahead and take a listen to this. It's also important um, for John Williams to be teaching us some rules here. Once again, we get first the underwater photography from the POV of the shark swimming up to the surface and the intensifying ostinato speeding up, getting louder, those watery triads all the way up until the moment of attack right here. Moment of suspense. What was that? And then he goes under. And then this famous shot here. It's really important for John Williams to restate the rules of this one-to-one -one that we mentioned with the shark. That there is a one-to-one -one between the music and the shark by teaching us yet again that when the shark attacks, this is what you hear. You hear that rhythmic ostinato rising from the surface, getting louder, and then disappearing once the attack is over. Then we enter another period of no music, no score, from about 18 minutes into the movie to about 25 and a half minutes, just life on the island as per usual. This is a long time, once again, by modern standards to have no music in a movie. And now for a brief intermission. And now, back to the soundtrack show. Then there is this wonderful moment of music as spatial perceptive function, when there are these two fishermen that are trying to fish for the shark off of this old wooden pier. They throw the wife's giant 4th of July roast out into the water and it's as bait, and it's attached to this old tire and a pile of thick chain that's tied to the pier. So let's listen to how the action unfolds between these three characters, two portrayed by actors, and the third, the shark, portrayed by, well, inanimate objects like a tire and eventually a pier, and an orchestra. Keep in mind, the shark, the giant puppet shark, wasn't working, so it's not in this scene. Yet this scene is the ultimate in suspense. And we know as the audience exactly where the shark is. Let's take a listen to the pier. 
So they're whistling and suddenly the tire starts jerking and moving and then we immediately see the tire start going out to sea and the chain starts unrattling. And you get this wonderful descending violin line as you just see this tire going out to sea. And then suddenly the whole pier collapses and the pier goes out with one of the fishermen into the ocean. And you see the pier go all the way out, all the way out. Still hear the ostinato as the pier is floating away. Then you hear, you hear the pier turn. And then suddenly it gets loud. Now we know the shark has spotted the fisherman and is coming in for the kill. And the fisherman is swimming as fast as he possibly can as this just hunk of wood is chasing him. No shark visible, but the music is doing all the work. Wonderful moment when he's trying to, he's, he can't find his footing, trying to get up there, trying to get up into the, uh, the remainder of the dock. And he eventually does it, and the pieces of the dock just float towards the shore. And the ostinato goes from being high in the orchestra down to those low instruments as the shark vertically descends. We go home now. Fascinating, fascinating use of music here. That's all we're going to play in terms of shark attacks on this episode. I think we've driven the point home. But keep in mind, as you watch the movie, keep in mind how the orchestra tells you where the shark is in relation to the characters on screen and in relation to the camera. So now time for some other fantastic music that helps us to get to know our characters. After the second shark attack, which results in the death of young Alex Kintner, the whole island goes on an amateur shark hunt. Some locals catch a tiger shark, but of course, oceanographer Matt Hooper isn't ready to claim a victory. And while they're discussing this tiger shark, um, Alex's mother, she actually shows up. She's in mourning. She's wearing all black and she confronts Chief Brody. And what follows is a theme about loss, about children. Um, it drives home the point that the attacks are personal. Real lives are at stake. And now Chief Brody feels the real fear of a parent of two boys. Mrs. Kintner lost her son. They could all lose their children to something like this. He's responsible not only as a parent, but as chief of the island. And he needs to wield his influence in order to prevent this from happening again. So all of this is weighing on his mind as we cut from this confrontation scene to the Brody family dining room where Chief Brody is sitting, wordless, with his youngest son. His son sits with him quietly, and he slowly realizes, Brody slowly realizes that his son is imitating him in admiration, like this very sweet little game. Williams wrote the most wonderful piece to accompany this. Let's just take a listen here. My boy is dead. I wanted you to know that. And she leaves. Here's this cue. Starts out mournful. I'm sorry, Martin. She's wrong. No, she's not. No, she's not. And then we cut to the Brody's family right, room. Fellas. Now listen to this wonderful piece here. 
Mrs. Brody walks into the kitchen, there's a moment alone between these two. Brody takes a sip of his drink. The son takes a sip of the milk. He rubs his face. The son rubs his face. He realizes what's going on. They start making faces at each other. This music is telling us so many different things. Unobtrusive, sweet, but lacking in resolve. It even contains an underlying feeling of dread. Why? Well, let's break it down. I mean, the chords are pretty simple on the surface. They're just this kind of thing. But they're not that simple. It's not just this kind of like uh, sort of pop tune like... You know, it's not like something ridiculous like that. It's, it's instead got this thing in it called a suspension. So instead of just this, it's this. It's got this suspension in it. This note that doesn't resolve. So that suspension, which creates tension, and quite literally in musical terms, a, a lack of resolution, is perfect to convey a, a fleeting moment of peace. It's this happy moment that still contains a little uncertainty because you've got this thing hanging. That's not a resolved chord like this. Right? It's really just... And it just doesn't quite give you peace. In musical terms, it doesn't rest. It doesn't land on what's called a final cadence, right? It's uncertain. But there's something else that's going on here that I think is really interesting. So if you have this, he's doing this in the bass. If you took this note and you actually played it up here, it would actually be like this. It's, it's, so that's a wonderful technique that composers use. If you put just a, an off note in the bass, you know, any tune becomes just a nightmare. It's, it's a wonderful dramatic device to just let you know that there is this pit in Chief Brody's stomach. There's a shark out there. There's something out there that could take this happy moment away from him. And this piece that John Williams writes, it just has this way of, of conveying that sweetness, but it doesn't do it in an overly saccharine way. It doesn't rob you of that moment at the same time. It's a very fine line that I feel like he, he walks there very well with, these, with this piece here. Now, as much as I want to play the one really good scare that happens as Hooper and Brody find Ben Gardner's boat adrift at sea, I don't want to ruin it for you. Um, so check out the movie for some amazing cinematography and 
And uh, this sequence where they go out at night, uh, that later that night, and find the boat, um, really is in my mind the beginning of that incredible William Spielberg magic of just light and sound that we later experience in movies like E.T. But for time, I'm going to skip ahead to perhaps the most fun musical cue in the whole first half of the of the movie. So as a reminder of the plot, Brody, Chief Brody, and the oceanographer Hooper, Richard Dreyfus, still can't get old Mayor Larry to shut down the beaches. We're already at two deaths here, one of which was a child. Because it'll ruin Amity's 4th of July weekend, their big weekend, which is this major tourist holiday for the island. He says to, to Chief Brody and Hooper, do whatever you have to do in terms of security, but the beaches are remaining open. What follows is a montage of the island as they prepare for the big weekend, as tourists arrive via ferry. So let's take a listen to this to this cue here. Actually, this is not a cue. This is from the movie. We're just going to listen to a little bit of the actual film itself. Larry, Larry, if we make an effort today, oh, we might man. be able to save August. August? <laughs> for Christ's sake, tomorrow's the 4th of July, and we will be open for business. It's going to be one of the best summers we've ever had. Now, if you fellas are concerned about the beaches, you do whatever you have to to make them safe. But those beaches will be open for this weekend. Oh, here we go. He drives away. And we see the island really come to life here. The ferry arrives. Okay, now I want to know how you're going to send me. Doctor, there is no need for me to come to Brisbane when I have a great white shark right here. I'm telling you, listen to this shark motif as the as the tourist get off the ferry. Right here. Right there. As all the lunch meat arrives. Monday. Michigan, Listen, Michigan is the Petty Officer Feldman. What? He's the little guy with the crew cut. All the traffic, all the festivities, the signs going up. Businesses getting ready. Could you connect me, please? It's over. And it cuts to these kids in an arcade playing an old 70s shark attack shooter game at the arcade. Oh man, what a what an interesting cue. So what did we just hear? Well, <laughs> this is our first example of a real dark humor on the part of Williams and Spielberg. First of all, this music cue on the original soundtrack album was called Tourists on the Menu. Yeesh. I do want to point out uh, one spot where you can hear the shark motif or ostinato as part of this major key piece, right as the tourists are arriving off the ferry, if you caught that. They're coming off the ferry and you hear the jump, 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 jump. I mean, you know, if we're conditioned to know the shark is always there, the shark could be hanging out and sensing all of these people coming to the island. That shark is not going anywhere. The problem is just getting worse with all of these people coming onto Amity. So that part is pretty obvious, but what's up with the music itself? This Baroque-like little piece for solo trumpet, harpsichord, and strings. 
Well, in the book, John Williams Film Music, author Emilio Audesino has this wonderful insight into the score of Jaws, which he calls Williams' first, first truly neoclassical score uh, for a movie in a modern setting. I want to read an excerpt from this because I think it's really, really wonderful. Quote, Among the early 1970s films set in the present time and designed to hopefully become box office hits, Jaws was the first one employing a symphonic score and having no theme song. A significant example is the montage sequence showing the flocking of tourists to the island to celebrate the 4th of July. This 90-second sequence would have been the ideal showcase, this is so interesting, the ideal showcase for a marketable song, perhaps in the style of the Beach Boys surf music, a choice that would have been clever from a commercial point of view, and would have also been interestingly motivated by the contrast between the cheerful tone of the music and the deadly danger looming over the tourists. Instead, the montage is accompanied by a Baroque dialect piece for strings, solo trumpet, and harpsichord. From under the serene and formal surface of the piece, the shark ostinato emerges by cellos and contrabasses, offering a kind of black-humored comment on the impending menace. This choice also cleverly expresses, in music, one of the narrative themes, the city council refuses to close the beaches, preferring to ignore the menace rather than risk jeopardizing the 4th of July tourism revenues. As in the music, a formal and pompous surface states that everything is fine so as to conceal the pending danger. Boy, he's right. Uh, movie soundtrack wisdom states that this is where you'd put that marketable song, that hit to sell soundtracks. I mean, heck, they were doing that in the 30s and 40s. And instead, the focus is on the story's narrative and not a licensed Beach Boy tune or a new song penned by a famous pop group at the time in order to sell records. But how is it focused on the narrative? Interestingly enough, Audacino mentions the, quote, pompous nature of the town leadership, and he's really on to something here. Uh, the use of solo trumpet and particularly the use of a harpsichord, which is... For those of you that don't know, a plucked keyboard instrument that predates our modern piano. I mean, it's not an instrument that we use anymore. But that harpsichord gives it a uniquely Baroque feel, as he, as he described. Well, what's the significance of that? Indulge me in a quick history sidebar. We've mentioned that our orchestral tradition in Western music comes from Europe. So European history is hugely important to film music, especially orchestral film music like Jaws. So the High Baroque is a period where most music was played at court for the aristocracy and was this high-browed, complex affair where music, by and large, was about form and clever counterpoint, as well as a high level of musicianship. Um, things like melodic lyricism or a hummable tune, for example, they weren't really fashionable yet. Anyway, immediately following this period comes what is known today as the Age of Enlightenment in Europe, or the Age of Reason, which took place in the 18th century. And this period can be briefly characterized as a period that saw the slow dissolve of the ruling class and the aristocracy, the rise of the middle class, and this humanist philosophy that meant that every person mattered. Ultimately, the Enlightenment ended with revolution, like the French Revolution of the 1790s, so the arts, such as music, reflected these times and became more of a public affair with middle-class citizens attending concerts, uh, buying sheet music, 
becoming educated about music themselves, etc. And music became much more about melody, about hummable tunes. It became more, ac more accessible. And the Baroque style of music fell out of fashion. So instinctively, we hear this music, like in, in this cue by John Williams, and we hear the pompous nature of it. We hear hubris, the hubris of the town leadership who has decided to keep the beaches open, the hubris of humankind versus the unstoppable force of nature. Instead of the Beach Boys, we have the high court of Amity's leadership. It's as if John Williams and Spielberg are saying, you are going to get your aristocratic asses eaten. The Soundtrack Show will continue after these messages. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. Lastly, I want to talk about the actual event, the big 4th of July weekend on the beach itself. Again, no music, no 70s rock stars or pop groups, no yacht rock, just the sound of marching bands, tiny battery-powered personal radios, cross-cut with helicopters, police radios and boats, all trying to protect the tourists from the threat of the Great White Shark. Williams, John Williams, made the decision to not include music in this scene. And this decision is, according to Spielberg, brilliant. Part of the genius of John Williams is how he spots music and how he places music in a movie. That sort of, you know, that's sort of something that's never discussed about the art of composition, is the placement of that composition. You know, uh, and John did not want music to celebrate a red herring. He only wanted music to signal the actual arrival of the shark. There were opportunities in the movie to advertise the shark with the music, and also opportunities when we don't have the music and the audience has a sense of an absence. <laughs> they sense the absence of the shark because they don't hear the thump thump, because we've conditioned them to do that. This scene contains the biggest panic in the whole movie. Hundreds of tourists, I mean, in terms of scale, hundreds of tourists climbing over each other, and in some cases getting trampled or potentially drowned by other tourists frantically trying to get out of the water. And there's no music, none. Just the sound of people panicking. Somehow, because we've been conditioned to, as John Williams mentioned, we know that there's actually no shark there. He made me do it. He told me to do it. Please. Please, move back. Let's move back. Please, give these people some air. Please, move back. Move back. Martin, it's just a hoax. There are two kids with a cardboard fin. We know that this is a prank by these two boys with the, uh, with the cardboard fin. We'll get this again with Quint's fishing line, but that's for another episode. Finally, when the shark does arrive, it's in the estuary or the pond, and we do get the music as the shark takes its third victim at the one hour mark of the movie. What follows in our second part of the analysis is the swashbuckling adventures of our heroes as they embark on a dangerous mission to kill the shark aboard the Orca. We'll discuss how the whole tone of the movie changes and how much music is dedicated to the human spirit fighting the seemingly unstoppable approach of Jaws. Thank you.